If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn to Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter 7. We are going to shift gears a little bit for the summer. Uh, You might remember that this whole year we are thinking about this idea of life with Jesus uh, that comes directly from the gospel of John. We're spending the first half of the year up to this point looking at the first 11 chapters of John. Um, and then in the fall, we'll go back and start in, verse ch- in chapter 12 and go through the end of the Gospel of John together. But we're thinking about life with Jesus because that's the purpose why John gives for why he wrote that book. So we're thinking about life with Christ. And even though we're putting the pause button on John, we are still thinking about life with Jesus this summer, okay? We're going to spend some time this summer looking at this section, Matthew 5 through 7, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 which is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, maybe you've never heard of the Sermon on the Mount before, so I just want to give you a little bit of introduction to this series and a little bit of an introduction of these chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, As far as I can tell, the first time it was called the Sermon on the Mount was around the year 400 from this church father, Augustine. So prior to that, it wasn't known as the Sermon on the Mount. It was just Jesus preaching. What we're looking at is actually sermons of Jesus. It's kind of cool to think about, right? Maybe you have a little bit of familiarity with the Sermon on the Mount, and you think of the Sermon on the Mount in terms of how to be a good person. Oftentimes, that's how this section in Matthew's Gospel is taught. You know, the golden rule, turn the other cheek, pray this way. Oftentimes, the Sermon on the Mount is presented as in, if you just follow these things the way Jesus says them, it's how you can be a good person. I want to show you, this is why we're starting at the end that that's actually not why the Sermon on the Mount and not how the Sermon on the Mount was written at all. Jesus is not writing all this stuff and preaching these things in order to tell us how to be good people. Jesus is literally pastoring us. He's saying, this is what I am doing in the world through my people. Life with me means you become part of my kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount is what my kingdom looks like. It's what my people look like in the world in which they live. Does that make sense? So maybe you can think through the idea that Jesus is preaching. Jesus is pastoring us. He's not saying, do this stuff and you'll be a good person. He's saying, this is what I am doing in my people in the world. This is part of the reason why we're finishing up with the last part of chapter 7. Because this morning, as we look at the two foundations, and I read 24 through 28, you'll get a sense that this section is the lens through which everything else in chapters 5 through 7 makes sense. So we're starting at the end, because where Jesus works his way up to that point, so we can understand everything he's saying through the last part. You follow me? Make sense a little bit? So this summer, we got to keep this section in mind. Otherwise, we're going to perhaps misunderstand chapters 5 through 7. So with that in mind, listen to this. Matthew chapter 5, 24 through 28. Did I say Matthew 5? Man, it's a good thing that my brain's working a little bit this morning, even if it's slow. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall 
because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for the freedom we have to change gears and take a break from the Gospel of John and to look, Jesus, into what you have said and how you preached. And we thank you that you're pastoring us, that you want us to think about our lives in very deep ways. So we pray this summer as we look at your sermon and think through what you say, that you would always help us to connect our lives to you. That Holy Spirit, you would expose the foundation of our lives that we might build our lives on Christ. And therefore, that this sermon and this pastoring in chapters 5 through 7 would make sense. So we pray that you would have your way with us, that you would encourage us, challenge us, rebuke us, expose what is deep down, that we might find life afresh. We pray this for your glory and our good. Amen. Jesus is no doubt pastoring us. He's helping us understand life and what he has done and what he is doing in our lives and in the world. We can't forget that. Now, this morning as we look at this chapter and these verses, I want to follow right behind Jesus. I want to walk in a similar way that Jesus is walking. And that means this. At this point in my life, I have been ministering in the church or for the local church for almost half of my life. And I have noticed that there are two ways that people primarily experience the gospel and experience the church. And I want to highlight those those two ways for you by telling you two stories. And my hope is that it will some way, in some way, connect with you. Maybe both of them will. This is my observation on how people have typically experienced the gospel and the church. Here's story number one. I'll be reading this as first person. I grew up in a Christian home. I was regular at church. I was very involved. I learned all the rules. I placed a really high value on the V card. Life seemed easy and always so clear. I was a good student. I was athletic. And when I went away to college... I didn't realize there were so many options. Porn was easier than ever. The guy next door to me sold weed. The only real difficult thing was the semi-odd texts and calls that I got from my mom and my dad wondering how I was. They were just asking me questions. But really, these questions were really demands laced with threats. But I knew that if I could endure for two or three weeks, things would drop off. I met so many people 
And many of the people that I met when I was in school had no exposure to the church or the gospel whatsoever. People that were not like me weren't at all like I had been told. They were far more generous, they were more nice, they were more welcoming than I had ever experienced. And I didn't know what to do with all that. But I was very curious. So I decided to listen to what they had to say because they talked about life and they talked about stuff way more holistically. They looked at the world as a place to explore and not through the lens of rules. Here's story number two. I grew up in a Christian home, kind of churched. We were not very consistent. We definitely were not plugged into any church. But I was the reason why the family picked the church that we did. I was involved in youth group. Looking back, I realized church and youth group was about having fun. It was about having a blast. It was cool. It was fun. It was comfortable. I got the message. Jesus was my homeboy. Jesus made my life better. When I went to college and didn't know what to look for, one thing I was determined, I was determined that I was going to have fun. I met a bunch of dudes that knew how to be polite around adults, but when we were by ourselves, we enjoyed alcohol and the hippie lettuce, the ganj, weed. You ever notice how many words there are for weed? There are like over a thousand. I think my favorite is the silly spinach. You ever heard that one? Anyway, back to the story. So I was around guys that knew how to be polite around adults, but when we were by ourselves, we enjoyed alcohol way too much, and we enjoyed the hippie lettuce. I picked an area of study because I felt that 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 area would please my parents, a.k.a. get them off of my back. But that major didn't work out. So I tried another one, then I tried another one, and I ended up just getting frustrated. And after alcohol and weed didn't really seem to help, I tried church. But honestly, it was a real struggle because church had always been about having fun. Church had always been about being comfortable. Jesus was what I added to my life to make me acceptable and to make me cool. But I was realizing I needed something deeper. And I had no idea where to look. Now with that backdrop, I want us to get into the text. Because what we read this morning and what Jesus is saying this morning is that he's talking about two foundations. These verses I read, 24 through 27, give us this final snapshot, this final analogy that Jesus uses. And this is actually, these two houses that Jesus talks about are actually the culmination of a lot of momentum that has been building up throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Stick with me. The last paragraph, verses 13 through 27, all fit together. 
If you have a copy of the Bible and you go back and look at Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13, you'll find out that Jesus talks about two paths. And what he's getting at there is the direction of our lives. It goes one way or the other. Then he talks about two trees that have two fruit, that bear two fruit. And what Jesus is talking about there is production. So he's not just wanting us to think about which path are we on, but he's actually wanting us to think about the production of our lives, what we have produced, what we have accomplished. And then in verses 21 through 23, Jesus actually talks about the end, like the great day in which everyone will appear before Jesus, in which we will be judged. And then after that are these verses in which he gets to the very foundation of our lives, as if to say, the two paths that you're on, the, the production, the things that you're producing in your lives, the fact that judgment is coming, all of that is anchored in the foundation. You get me? You see what I'm saying? And here Jesus is exploring foundation. He wants us to understand that this is most important. And if we're going to understand that a foundation is most important, Jesus is saying, look, we have to realize that all of us are builders. Every one of us. We are all builders. We are all building something. To live is to build. To live is to build. If you're here this morning and you are alive, which I think all of you are, you are building something. You are building a home, maybe literally, figuratively. You are building a house. You are building a life, whether that's going to be single or whether you're going to be married. You are building a career or figuring out what that career might be. You are building a resume. You are building a reputation. All of us are, all of the time. We are always building. And you know what? Here's what typical building looks like. Here's what typical building looks like. I'm trying to put together briefly the, a large swath of our lives. Here's where we build. The first half of our lives is typically, we're typically doing this. We are living to get what we want. Now when you're really young, that means that your parents are directing us to get us what they want us to have. So we're thinking about education, and we're thinking about our friendships, and we're thinking about career, and we're understanding what success is or isn't. We're thinking about money and learning about money. We're thinking and being taught about sex and pleasure. We're thinking about maybe having children or not. That's the first half of our life. And then, as someone mentioned a number of years ago, there is this quarter-life crisis. This is when it's not tied to a particular age as much as it is this. This is the time of life in which we've kind of figured out our career, kind of figured out if we're single or we're married. Maybe we started having kids, but this is the overarching direction. Our lives are moving forward. It's when we think we are on the ascendancy. Like our lives are ascending in every way. We figured out our career. We figure out whether we're going to be single or married. We might have even started having children. Everything is moving forward. We're climbing. 
And yet in the midst of our climbing, we begin to hear whispers. The whispers that we hear this, that a better job or a better marriage or a better life or having more money isn't really fully satisfactory. It's those times we begin to hear those whispers that, yeah, if you had a better career or if you had more money, that it would, be, that it would not be satisfying. We begin to hear those whispers. But in this stage of life, we largely ignore that because we have such a strong and deep desire for all of those things. It's why when we look at our own lives and our quarter-life crisis, what ends up happening is this. We start having fits of anger all of a sudden. Like we start getting more angry than we ever realized. Angrier than we've been before. Even more than that, we start realizing that, you know, I actually have a real deep sense of bitterness for life, my job, what I'm doing. Maybe it even transitions into this, that we have seasons of sadness and real discontent. It's the time of life in which we start feeling more and more gripped by fear than we ever had before. But we want to ignore the whispers. We want to ignore the whispers where people are telling us and where we're hearing and thinking and, real, and where we're hearing that, you know, your, your career isn't really going to satisfy. We want to ignore that. But what makes it really hard to ignore is that we know people that are just a little bit older than we are. And as we're on the ascendancy and climbing, we see them crashing down. That leads to the midlife crisis. This is that time when the stuff from the first half of our life starts cracking and coming apart. And that can happen actually early in life. You know, it's that time in which our bodies start falling apart. It's that time in which we have to recognize that our career really isn't that great, but where we've come to the realization that there are some good things about it, and we have to figure out how to make that work. It's a time when our families maybe start to fall apart. You know, when our friends and loved ones, either in our family or our coworkers or our neighbors, they start getting divorced. Things just start falling apart. It's a time in which the relationship to our parents dramatically changes and where you realize, you know what? I'm gonna have to start parenting my parents. That's real. We have to start figuring out how do I relate to my parents now? Because their desires and their needs pretty much can only be met by you and your siblings and maybe some of those who are around them. It's the time in which not only are we somewhat disgruntled about our career, but we have career challenges that we never could have anticipated. It's the time in which there are a lot of unexpected things that have happened you know the tragedies? You know the unexpected deaths? You know the family members that begin to die? It's when all that stuff starts going down and at the same time, we are learning to be more honest about ourselves and with ourselves. At the same time, we're learning to be more self-aware. This is the season of life in which we realize what we have achieved and what we have built, it doesn't quite look like we thought it was going to look. 
when we were in our 20s and 30s and maybe even in our 40s. It's the time in which our expectations are not met. And perhaps you have observed this or even felt this. It's the time in life in which three negative things typically happen. Actually, two negative and one positive. We either get really bitter or we get really broken. Or to borrow a phrase from a recent author in a recent book, or we get broken open. And it's not just that we feel broken, but that we're actually cracked open. And we're open to new things and new ways of thinking. Might even call it somewhat of an awakening. You see, because we are so gifted at covering things up. We are great at being dishonest. We are great at putting on the outward appearance that everything is okay, but yet deep down, things are really messed up. And actually, it doesn't even have to be deep down. It can be just barely below the surface with all that bitterness and frustration and discontent. It's a time in which we can create an alternative reality. And we just start telling people things that are just flat-out bold-faced lies because we're so bitter or because we're broken and we don't want to deal with it. You see, Jesus is saying we all are builders. We are always building something. And the storms are going to hit. Did you notice that? The storms are going to hit. Storms are going to hit us. We will always get soaked by the rain. We can't avoid it. We can't predict the wind and we can't control it. We don't know how hard it's going to blow and how long it's going to blow. Jesus is saying we are always building and we will always run into challenges. We will always run into struggles. That is a fact. And to press this even further... What Jesus is saying in these verses is so profoundly challenging because he is telling us in these verses that there is a counterfeit Christianity. There is a counterfeit truth. Think back with me through what Jesus is saying. Think back. Here's some examples. Before this, when he talks about the tree, that bears fruit, it's not as though he says, hey, there are two trees, one bears fruit and the other no fruit at all. You know how easy that would be to recognize? We would be able to say, look at the production of this person's life. This person has no production, therefore this is a problem. That's not what Jesus says at all. He's saying there are two trees and they both bear fruit. One of them's bad fruit, one of them's good fruit. Fast forward a little bit more, Look at verse 21 through 23. Actually, before we get to that, think back through what you know of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about praying in these chapters. He doesn't say there's some people that pray and there's some people that don't pray. Does he? He says, no, when you pray, pray in this manner. See, people are praying. He's talking to people that are praying all the time. He's talking to people that are producing fruit. Jesus talks about giving. It's not as though he says, you know, there's some people that give and some people that don't give. No, he says, when you give, give in this way. It's hard 
there's a counterfeit out there that is really close. He's talking about people that are doing things for the Lord. He's talking about people that are giving. He's talking about people that are praying. And when you look at verse 21 through 23, which is some of the most challenging verses in all of Jesus' teaching, listen to what he says. There will be some that come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do miracles and do great things for you? And Jesus responds and says, depart from me, I never knew you. Think about this. All of the scholars I read summarize those verses, 21 through 23, in this way. Jesus is talking to people that declare Jesus as Lord. They are orthodox in their faith. They say, Lord, Lord, which the way the Bible is written, when you add two words together, you're talking about emotional commitment. And even more than that, they are delineating how they are living their lives. Lord, haven't we, haven't we served people in your name? Haven't we taught people who you are? He's talking about people who are in ministry. So in some ways, yes, there's a lot of pressure on you. There's an enormous amount of pressure on me. Jesus is saying there are some who they're orthodox in their beliefs, who they are emotionally invested, and who they are serving in ministry. And Jesus says, I never knew you. What Jesus is saying here is so challenging because he's saying there is a counterfeit. There is a counterfeit. And it's really hard to tell. It's really hard. Now let's soften this a little bit because it's heavy, all right? Folkleys are not Oakleys. Remember that? Remember people would like take Oakley sunglasses and make fake ones, call them Folkleys, yeah? Folkleys are not Oakleys. CZ is not, it's not a diamond. It's a cubic zirconium, it's not a diamond. Pleather is not leather. And it isn't vegan leather. You heard that one? Some people call pleather vegan leather. It's not that either. It's not real. It's close. When you look at it, you think, wow, those look like the sunglasses I wanted to buy. I thought they were, no, they're not. Wow, this, this, this piece of jewelry looks beautiful. It's not a diamond. Wow, this, this is nice leather. Nope, it's not that either. Looks, looks like it. Looks like it, but it's not it. You see, it's close, but it's not always immediately obvious, Jesus is saying. These are people that we always have to think about because it could be us. We are not immune from this. You remember those two stories I started off with? I gave you those two stories because they are illustrative of the counterfeit. They illustrate the counterfeit. Because they think on one hand, life is following all the rules. That's not the message of Jesus. Or on the other hand, Jesus just props me up and he's an add-on. He's the best way for me to control my life. Jesus is saying it's counterfeit. It's not real. Both of those are void of Jesus. 
or void of Jesus. Might be using him, but it's void of Christ. Matter of fact, to press this even more, John Paul reminded me of this. There's a recent show that's ended, and a character was described on this show in this way. Yeah, she, is al- she was always good at using the truth to tell lies. Let that sink in. Yeah, she was always good at using truth to tell lies. Jesus wants us to recognize that we are all builders. And he's saying there's a counterfeit, and that's why he's leaving us with commitment. Because it is, mistake, it is unmistakable when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you read through these verses, it's unmistakable that Jesus is pushing us to decision. He's not only pushing us to reflect and reflect really, really deeply, he's wanting us to decide. But honestly, the way that Jesus is trying to get us to decide is not the way most of us have been manipulated in our lives. It's not the way most of us have experienced decisionistic Christianity. You know, the stuff in which we get backed into a corner, the times in which people have presented Christianity in this way, they're trying to scare the hell out of us. That's not the way Jesus operates at all. Jesus is matter of fact. Jesus is plain. He's saying this is the reality. He is straightforward. And then he leaves it there for us to chew on it. And he leaves it there for us to think. And he leaves it there for us to wrestle with our own lives and wrestle with our motives. You see, making a decision is not quite accurate enough. It's more like Jesus wants us to make a commitment, a deep and full-hearted commitment. Maybe this is why, and maybe this helps explain why his audience was so amazed. Did you catch that at the end of verse 28 and 29? They were astonished at his teaching. What that literally means is that they were thunderstruck. Like they were shocked out of their minds. And it's written in such a way that that was perpetual. They heard this teaching of Jesus and they were absolutely dumbfounded. They were profoundly struck with truth. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Because they have been used to living in a system in which everything was made easy. This is right, that's wrong. Do this, don't do that. And now Jesus is talking about the heart. For once, they finally met someone who actually cared about what was going on deep inside of them. For once, someone didn't just give them a pat answer. Oh yeah, we can fix that. Just do this, just stop doing that. For once, they ran into someone who cared so much about them that he would say, look, we can talk about fruit, but it doesn't matter if we're not going back to the foundation. Look, we can talk about prayer if you want, but it doesn't mean anything unless we go back to the foundation. We can talk about giving and I can do that if you want, but it doesn't matter unless we get to the foundation. And you see, they had been wanting that all along. We all want someone who loves us so deep down. 
who doesn't just look at us and think, hey, well, what can, what can I get out of this person? What can I get out of that person? What, what can this person produce for me? What can this person produce for me? Jesus says, no, let's go down to rock bottom because the storms are coming. And when the storms come, either you're built on me or everything's gonna crumble. Even if you think everything you've done is for me, if your house isn't built on the bedrock of who I am, you're really just using me to prop yourself up. You have to realize that I'm after your heart, that I care about the deepest part of your being. And friends, if we are willing to explore that, or if we're willing to get beyond just like the window dressing stuff, if we're willing to get down to the deepest commitments of our heart, then think about these questions this week. Chew on this. Chew on this stuff. I will be too. If you're at the point in which you're willing to think about the foundation of your life, start here. Are you willing to look and think about life the way Jesus lays it out? That's your starting point. Are you willing to look at life in the way that Jesus talks about it? And if that's an easy answer for you, then let's go to the next step. Are you willing to do the hard work of letting Jesus get to your foundation? Are you willing to let Jesus to get at the foundation of your life and, and expose it? Even if that means through the storm, through getting soaked by the rain, and through getting blown around by the wind, are you willing to let those things, the challenges of life, expose the foundation of who you are? I'll say it this way. Are we convinced, am I convinced that sin is far more than just what I do? Am I convinced that my heart is corrupt and that I'm deeply flawed? Jesus is saying, look, the counterfeit is real. If you want to keep putting another coat of paint on something, keep doing it, but that doesn't change anything. Have to go to the heart. And here's the last series of questions. Do you want, do I want to build my life? Do you want to build your life on Jesus? Week after week after week. Am I willing to come here every week and preach Jesus to you? Am I willing to hear Jesus in the passage every week? Are we willing as a church to be formed and shaped by Jesus week after week after week? Is Jesus enough for us? Is he enough for me? Is he enough for you? And what that means is, is what he says about your marriage enough? Is what he says about your children enough? Is how he defines success enough? Is his character enough for you and for me? That we would want to be like him? That's it? 
We want to be like Jesus. That's it. Is it enough? Are his plans enough for me? Is his timing enough for me? Or is it always, yeah, I want Jesus, but, but plus my timing. I want Jesus plus my definition of success. I want Jesus plus character that someone else tells me I need to have. Is Jesus enough? And beloved, don't miss the gospel here, okay? Don't miss the gospel here. Jesus is not afraid of the tension that's in this passage, in, these, in this sermon. He is not afraid of the tension, the tension that we are absolutely responsible on one hand and that God is relentlessly pursuing us on the other. He's not afraid of that tension. He is not afraid to say this and walk away. He is not afraid of that tension at all. Jesus lays the truth out there. And he wants us to think through our lives and what we're building and what we're doing. And he knows that God is pursuing us through everything that's happening in our lives. He's not afraid of that at all. For those of you that struggle and you keep coming to Jesus over and over and you feel like you commit the same sins and you keep coming back to Jesus, you might be nervous about this counterfeit. Don't. You're not the one he's talking to. If you know that you are weak and you have to keep coming back to Jesus, he is not saying that you're the counterfeit. You're the one that keeps coming back to him. You are doing the exact thing that you're supposed to do to declare and show that you are not your own and that you belong to Jesus and you trust him and you keep going to him. Don't worry about the counterfeit. It's not for you. But for those of us, for those of us that are mostly self-sufficient, for those of us who have gotten bitter through the storms and want to use Jesus just kind of every now and then, he's the add-on to our lives. But Jesus actually fundamentally is always a means to an end. Jesus has given it to us right between the eyes. And he's saying, you might be lost. You might be the counterfeit. And for every person, for every one of us, Jesus is saying, I am the only one that you can build your life on. I alone am the rock I can handle all of your successes. I can handle all of your failures. I alone can handle life itself. I alone can handle your death. I alone can handle your marriage. I alone can handle your career. You have to build your status on God from the bedrock of who I am. Am, Jesus is saying. He's the only one that understands our hearts. He's the only one that is worthy of our faith. You see, Jesus is saying, we were all made 
to build our lives on the foundation and the bedrock of Jesus and his death and resurrection. That's it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's pretty fascinating to read your sermon and to think about it. Because you don't mince words. And you tell us there's a counterfeit. And all along, you're not just giving us little clues and tips on how to live life. You are after our heart. So Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father, would you expose who we really are? And would you cause us to be so overwhelmed by your grace that we give ourselves to you afresh. And for those that are struggling and wonder whether or not this could be them, whether they might be counterfeit, Father, Son, and Spirit, speak sweet comfort and confidence to their heart to continue to trust and believe. Oh Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. For your glory, I pray. Amen.